Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Don't Tell Me The Score the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it, from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life, and in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. I always like hearing from you, so the best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com, or I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to the five-time Olympian and former rower Francis Horton about teams. Hi, Simon. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, actually. Yeah, I'm enjoying this little adventure I'm on. This little adventure you're on? Yeah. Just elaborate on that quickly. So I've put together my learnings from my 21 years in rowing. And initially, it was meant as a, a way of getting this stuff out of my brain. And then I thought, well, it would be really nice if I printed a few extra off and gave them to some coaches and some physios and doctors and things to say thanks very much for what I learned and what they helped me sort of experience and what we put together between us. And it seems to have sort of morphed a little bit. And um, it's just been a real pleasure to talk a bit more about it because for me, it's just the start of a conversation. So, mm. um, yeah, it's just been a bit of an unexpected adventure, but um, great fun. All the best things morph, don't they? And I've got your learnings from five Olympic Games here in my hands. I love the title. Nice and snappy. That was a good one. I mean, it really does. It's the old Ron Seal thing. It really does say exactly what it does on the tin, doesn't it? 
Danny Vernon did say to me, did you not think of a different title? And I said, well, not that many people can write that title. So I thought I'd just stick exactly. with it. It is what it says on the tin. <laughs> Absolutely. It really is. Um, speaking of rowers, I mean, I do love having rowers on Don't Tell Me The Score. So I've had Annie Vernon on, who not only have you won an Olympic medal with, but she's your neighbour that you can see basically, as you were just explaining to me, across a body of water near where you live, through to Catherine Granger, Ben Hunt Davis. There's something special about rowers. I don't know what, I can't quite put my finger on it. S- somewhat slightly masochistic in terms of the sport you do, yet all clearly deep thinkers and reflective um well whether we like it or not our training does involve a lot of doing one cyclical thing over and over which then (laughs) leads to a lot of time in our heads percolating on things so yeah I think we become that way even if we weren't that way to start with so you are a five-time Olympian I mean it's a very exclusive club that isn't it so is it just you Catherine Granger and Steve Redgrave Oh, gosh, I think so. Yeah, I know I was the fifth woman in any sport for Britain um, sort of across different sports. And I think in rowing, that would be the three, but I would be mortified if I've forgotten someone. <laughs> yeah, well, you and me both. But I'll tell you what, what, I mean, that is a fantastic club to be a part of. You as well. So you won three silver medals. You're a four-time world champion as well. And we're t- so today, basically... In terms of a theme, we're really talking about what it takes to make a successful team, along with many other themes within that. Because obviously, when you are rowing, whether it be you know in a two, a quad, or an eight, and I know you have experience across the board, the lessons you can learn about operating successfully with other people, about connecting with other people, that they are universal truisms that could be applied in, in any sphere of life and, and rowing really, well, any sport, but particularly the rowing and the 21 years you spent really did help you zero down on, on the key elements of that. Is that fair? Yeah, it really did. Um, you know, it's a tough sport. It involves a lot of training on our own and you can't get selected until you've proved yourself as an individual and only then do you get into the crew so there's this constant weird dynamic where you're sort of looking out for yourself, but then the only time you can really create incredible performances and um, work together with other people is this small amount of time each sort of spring and summer. But that is really where the the enjoyment and the richness is of being involved in sport at that level. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So we're going to unpick a lot of the things that anyone could apply to make their team or be a part of a team more successful, more happy, more, more cohesive, more collaborative, all those kind of things. And in terms of the arc of your story, I mean, you certainly went on a journey. Now, um, basically, a guy called Mark. So hi, Mark, if you're listening, as and I hope you are. Um, listener to Don't Tell Me The Score got in touch to say that uh, – Obviously, the word journey comes up a lot with these type of things. But I think it's it's hard to think of another way to describe what happened over your 21 years. Can you think of anything else other than the word journey to describe the evolution that you went on? Are there any other words we could think of or should we just stick with journey? Uh, I think we probably have to stick with journey. I mean, j- journey do. does kind of sound like you know where you're heading and you put the put the thing into the sat-nav and it takes you there, which definitely was not the case. <laughs> I guess it's a bit more meandering. Um, and a few uh, dead ends and um, things like that. But you know what? It was what it was. 
It was. Okay, so sorry, Mark, journey it is. And in terms of what you learnt along your way, it did feel to me in terms of me understanding your story that you set out with a vision really of, of what you wanted, what you thought you wanted. And then over time that evolved and perhaps you realised that deep down in, in terms of you know your heart's desire, actually your values and what you really, really wanted, it was broader than just what you, you focused on initially. Yeah, I, to a certain extent, that's true. I think I started out very conscious of what I perceived was expected of me. And I've one of my values quite strongly is sort of duty. Um, and I think that's the mindset I started with was that it is my duty to fulfill what others expect of me. Um, and I think my evolution was to come to a point where I said, well, actually, it's going to be healthier for me to, to detach myself from what others expect of me and actually do this for the reasons that are really powerful and meaningful to me and only me within myself as a person. Mm. Where did that duty then or that sense of duty come from? Um, I think it's um, a sort of family value, um, quite a sort of disciplined upbringing, um, lots of sort of music lessons and, you know, doing what was required on a daily basis in a sort of quite structured way. And I think I just felt like that's what the right thing to do was. You know, I was really, really well preconditioned for the world of rowing. I was very used to being given a set of instructions and doing them um, and really being quite comfortable in a lot of structure and routine. So I guess I didn't want someone said, look, I think this is something you could pursue and be good at. And there are certain things that you might be able to achieve it would have felt like I was letting others down or, f or falling short of what my duty was to fulfil if I didn't give that everything. So within that duty, there was an element of approval? Um, I think now that I look back more, I'm sure there is, and I'm sure there's some kind of deep, deep psychological theory about approval, but I think... Yeah, it was more duty than approval, I'd say. Um, but I wasn't much good at other stuff. So I'm sure that the approval was quite exciting for me. Of course, yeah. And look, look, I think we all, everyone wants approval, don't they? But then mm. what you said is that at a certain point during your career, you switched from, okay, doing this in terms of duty, in terms of expectation, others to more like, okay, what do I want and how do I want to be? So it became very much more self-referencing. Yes. And also looking back over the best experiences and the best teams I'd been in and really challenging myself to be able to answer, okay, so what did I value most out of this experience, whether it was a gold medal or it was a, you know, a disappointing silver or it was a fourth place and saying, okay, well, I've got a limited time left. What do I want? more of yeah there was a definite shift what's interesting i think is as well in becoming self-referencing and in becoming thinking okay what do i want still the outcome seemed to be more connection more yeah. collaboration and more success with others which is a 
almost a little counterintuitive. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, a, a lot of self-evaluation and then realising in answer to that question, it was, oh, the thing that actually I really, really value is that collaboration with other people and realising that my very best performances had come when I had a mindset not of, you know, what we're really supposed to win. It was actually, what can we create together in a sort of limitless uh, perspective, not that we were, again, fulfilling what others expected of us, but just saying, you know what, it's a clean slate and there are no ceilings. What is possible? Let's go and find out. Um, And I knew when I analysed that, I knew that not only did I perform best with that mindset, but it was also so much more enjoyable. Mm. Um, So when I knew I had a limited amount of time left, I said, well, you know what, if if I've got a limited number of days, if I could have more, as many good days as possible, this is what they'd be like. And then that really made me think, okay, well, if the absolute best outcome of this is that I could stand on an Olympic podium again, how do I want to feel when I'm there? Not Mm. what do I want to hold or what do I want to achieve? But Mm. actually, if I could stand there with my arms around my teammates and share a moment where we can completely look look each other in the eye and celebrate each other for what we've put together, what we've been through, what we've um, seen in each other. Well, if that is going to be a genuine moment, then that comes back to the everyday and really getting to know each other, really appreciating each other each and every day from that point onwards. It can't just come in that moment, not going to suddenly feel like that in that moment. So it's an orientation away from this, okay, we're building towards this moment in the future where everything will be hunky-dory and there'll be rainbows and Mm. and harps and all that kind of stuff too. Enjoying every day, this day, tomorrow, the next day, so on and so forth. So it's an orientation. So it's changing from being future focused to now focused and in the process taking care of the future. Yes. Um, but I would say it's not necessarily about enjoying it. Um, I think it's so easy to say, oh, enjoy it, um, or I'm going to tell myself to enjoy it. Actually, it was saying, you know what, if I engage in every day, yeah, if I really sort of make sure I press pause in every day and say, actually say to people, I really care about you, rather than just thinking it, but forgetting to say it, and saying, um, you know, this is this is a really special thing we're trying to do. It was that appreciation of each moment and and that one moment can lead on to another, onto another, onto another in a building of momentum. That was really different to the enjoyment. And I think a lot of people had sort of tried to tackle this, oh, you know, for, you know, don't worry so much about the outcome, you know, just enjoy it. You're really lucky to do what you do and you're going to go to the Olympics. And it's like, yeah, but I can't just tell myself to enjoy it. I needed to... I really needed to shift the, my perspective on each day. Mm. It's a bit more about meaning because special things aren't always enjoyable. Meaningful things. If I think of building a career, anyone who has kids knows as well. You know, they, they aren't. It's not always enjoyable, but it's that 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 meaning side of it. So is that what you're getting at? The meaning. Yeah. 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 Um, and then it is interesting that 
your definition of success changed and this is something that's come up quite a few times on this podcast as well as I've mentioned some of the rowers as well and I spoke to Kath Bishop who's incredible and she was talking about the moving from the zero sum definition of of winning and uh, winning at all costs to a bit more of exactly what you're talking about collaboration and and uh, cooperation while still striving to win, obviously, Pippa Grange, the same thing. So this this does seem to be a, a conversation that is naturally bubbling up at the moment. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think this percolation um, started when I actually look back, and I know Kath mentioned this as well, but I think it was about 2010 or 2011. And I studied Latin at university. So I've always, always been interested in what the real again meaning of things are and when I understood that competition actually comes from the word competere which means to strive together it doesn't mean to win and it doesn't mean to beat but it's this striving and around the same time I was reading a, um, a biography of Roger Federer and I know you're a huge fan of Roger, Roger Federer as well but about he talks about he needs the, he needs the opposition to bring out his best and that's where I really started to shift this thinking. And I think alongside that as well, you know, when I first started in Sydney, uh, well, Atlanta, there was only one gold medal and that, that was in rowing. Sydney, we had 10 gold medals. And the people that were returning home as Olympic champions really were household names. They were sort of legends and heroes. But once we started winning so many Olympic medals, and especially those gold medals, Beijing, London, and Rio, the reality just wasn't matching the expectation. People weren't returning with a sort of life shifted. You know, I I think many of us would struggle to name every member of the women's hockey team that won gold or every men, member of the men's sprint team that won gold in London, for example. And... I think for many athletes, there's a sense of, okay, so what else am I getting out of this? Because the medal isn't going to change my life. As it never should have, in my opinion, um, sort of had that expectation. But there's a real reality now that there are so many British Olympic gold medalists that inevitably I think what people are looking for in it is maybe a slightly richer, longer lasting thing. Yeah. I um Goldie Sayers, I, I always like the what how she describes she won her Olympic medal eleven years, I think, after the actual event because of a, a, a yeah. drugs cheat and she got the medal and she now says it has pride of place above this recycling bin and it's almost this slightly comic thing that that doesn't hold quite the same luster that she imagined it would. And much like you, it was then reflecting back on the other things beyond just the medal. I liked what you said about Roger Federer there, by the way, as well, in terms of needing the competition to to essentially to create something. Because I think of his his greatest, considered to be his greatest final, 2008 with Rafa Nadal, he lost. Yet to be able to look at that and think, well, I was part of a masterpiece, part of painting something really special. That's a really a lovely outlook and one quite at odds with the, the narrative that we that we have been fed for a long time, which is winning is all that counts. Yeah, and I you know I think once I understood the power of altering our perspective on something that you think is a really set thing, it was almost like the doors opened. It's like oh, everything can be seen from different perspectives, 
Um, and I actually, the other day, interestingly, I also read that the root word for rival is this Latin word revalis. And actually, that it's not like rival, like we think of it now. It's, it means one person using the same stream as another. And I think that really fits as well with the sort of Roger Federer story as well. You know, who's got this huge rivalry, as you say, with Rafa Nadal and um, Novak Djokovic. And he seems to, he just like, really simply seems to be okay with that. And I mean, I'm sure that it's way, way more complex than that, but the grace with which he handles it, um, he sees real positive in the fact that they are both swimming this same stream together. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it does say something perhaps as well, do you think about not just sport, about there's room for a bit more collaboration within the competition that exists in, say, business and, and the, the world we've created anyway. Yeah, I do. I just, for me, I get so much more out of it when I'm appreciating the moment of working together with other people. Um, and, you know, it's a bit like, I think I, I really like gardening. <laughs> and um, I think of it like... Very good for you. Very good well, for you. Yeah. Um, but in, whenever I'm gardening, it's not like I want to get it done. DIY, I want to get done. <laughs> I want it over. I want that whole field. But gardening, I just enjoy doing it. And there isn't this end point. And there isn't this, this achievement at all. It's this thing that is continually, as you say, evolving. Um, and I think the sort of final hurdle is to give ourselves permission. It's okay to enjoy doing things. It's okay to say actually you know what um being really engaged in working with other people that for me is a huge part of the reward of doing this and I remember at one point thinking to myself look I've got two years left what is going to make the next two years of a lot of hard work worth it and I thought well actually I've got this opportunity to look back and think about the things that I value the most and actually if out of these last two years I could really really have memories of working together with incredible people I mean there are so many people on the rowing team that will will never sort of see the light of day in terms of sort of exposure and and fame but they're incredible incredible human beings and the privilege to work together with someone and you sit down over breakfast and you're saying right you know let's see if we can and be the best in the world and they're like yeah what, do, what should we do what, what's the next yeah. session I think Absolutely. Yeah. Right. it's just brilliant I like what you said about gardening it reminded me of uh, do you know Alan Watts the old philosopher no I don't check him out you'll like him okay. anyway he said it he said something along the same lines which is it's like with dancing you know you don't dance perhaps we do these days with Strictly to get the scores but ignoring that and into the classic dancing you know, you don't dance to reach the end point. You dance for the enjoyment of the dance itself. Same even with, with music and a concerto. Yes. It's not just about the last note. It's everything as we as you go through it. And that's exactly the same that, that you're talking about in terms of gardening and these other things. So before we get into, because you have, there are actually lots of specific little nuggets and lessons that we can talk about as well. But I've picked just a couple of the, key points along your throughout your career studiously avoiding the word journey but along your journey so your first olympics was 2000 after that you decided right 
I'm going to squeeze in as many as possible and count it on your hands, right? I can keep going for another, <laughs> however many, you know, uh, another four Olympic Games. Uh, 2004, just really quickly, real quick, um, just a nod to Rebecca Romero, who you were in a boat with, because she went on to win the uh, an Olympic win the gold in, <laughs> in cycling. Can you pay homage to Rebecca, uh, oh. you know, as a rower and cyclist? Oh, absolutely. I mean, to sit behind Bex uh, in a rowing boat, every time we raced, we'd sit there on the start line and I'd think, mm, I'm not sure how this is going to go. The green light would come on and we would piece together the very best strokes that we had done in all of training, stitch together the best start, the best middle, the best end. And that's what Bex was. She had she has this ability to piece it all together uh, wonderful perspective amazing athlete so exciting to row with um, we won the world championships together the next year in rowing she then got injured and did a lot of training on the bike and yes yeah, switched to cycling and applied just her mentality her talent her humility her simplicity to cycling and yeah um, she won um, in Beijing individual gold medal just absolutely incredible I mean, it is, isn't it? Now, I often ask, most of the time off air, but my guests to suggest a, a guest for a future episode of Don't Tell Me The Score. Obviously, you and Bex are close. So can I leave that with you to sort that out? <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> I think that's a yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let's move forward to 2008. So you won silver medal. Now, I've already spoken to Catherine Granger and Annie Vernon and it was hard actually talking to both of them about it because I know for them it was incredibly traumatizing to win a silver. For Dame Catherine Granger, she'd won silver in 2000 and 2004 and not winning gold was, I mean, she described it as being like a bereavement and I know Annie took it pretty hard as well and when I spoke to her, I could sense her um, clam up if you like. So to finish the trilogy of chats about this harrowing silver medal at Olympics, what was your take on it? Um, yeah, I can tell you're excited about completing this like this group. Yeah, we'll have to get Debbie on as well. So my overriding memories, I mean, I remember crossing the line and Catherine gave out this, I mean, it wasn't a groan, but it was just this noise of pure frustration that said, I will never, ever be able to turn back the clock six and a half minutes. Like that's all I need is to turn back the clock in time and we can't. And we've failed and there is nothing we can now do about it. Seven minutes ago, we had the opportunity in our hands to influence this in a different way. I mean, it was just heart-wrenching and and for all of us, you know, I, I think, you know, we obviously we had our heart set on winning gold. But, you know, with a bit of perspective on it, you know, the, the other crews in the race, there were probably three favourites going into it. Um, the Chinese had beaten us over the course of the last few years. They were very much primed in their home Olympics. And the Germans had never lost the event in the history of the Olympic Games. And I think that we had, I mean, actually sitting on the start line, I looked at Catherine's, or all I can see is Catherine's, back Catherine's head. 
and every other world championships we'd been to together she'd always like had a haircut she was like so ready and I remember realizing that she hadn't had a chance to cut her hair and I just thought oh my goodness we just haven't had enough space for ourselves over this like last six eight months it sort of summed it up for me that we hadn't left enough space for ourselves our personalities our souls our sort of all the peripheral stuff that for me I know for me to perform at my best I need to be able to bring myself as well as myself as an athlete and my like my skill set in a boat and I think in our absolute desire to win we trained really 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 hard and just didn't leave enough space for for us to be able to bring our full selves so Um, is that about a bit about self-care then some of the stuff you talk about in terms of you know your pillars that you need personally mm. to be best somewhat neglecting some of the stuff you need individually yeah I just remember about six months through the year saying to Annie you do realize that we don't have another Saturday sort of weekend really free for ourselves like that real downtime between now and after the games and I thought gosh this is going to be this is going to be really hard to handle do you Um, think if you'd had downtime that could have made a difference then well, I just think we maybe would have made different decisions. Um, there would just you just I think the perspective changes on the everyday a bit. Like I mean, now I can really tell if I'm a bit tired. I just don't cope as well. I don't make the same decisions. I don't mm. see things with perspective. And even if it didn't change the outcome, if we had had a bit more perspective, then I think we would have seen the silver medal slightly differently let's fast forward then to 2014 which was a seminal moment for you in terms of so you you were burnt out at this time and it forced you to to reflect to stop to look back and explore what worked what didn't the way you were doing things so what led you to this point of being burnt out and what came from that yeah, so I was obviously really conscious that I still hadn't won and I felt like it was one of my goals was to win the Olympics. And I had had a standpoint of whatever crew I was in saying that we can do it and this is how we've done it before. This is what we need to do to, you know, to win. Um, this is what it should feel like. Um, but the crews were getting slower and slower I was getting more and more frustrated and I was passing that frustration on to my teammates and it was just not really much fun to be around me and it wasn't the experience for other people that sport should be either and this constant pushing, 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 although it was well-intentioned, it just led to me getting injured and ill over and over and over again until the point where it was really my body's last way of telling me look you've got to stop you can't keep pushing you can't keep pushing yourself and you can't certainly can't keep pushing others and so my I had a back injury I was I was lying on the I was lying on my living living room floor I think it was about um, 10 days two weeks simply swapping a bag of frozen peas for a hot water bottle peas for the hot water bottle over and over again 
And it was like my, it, the, this was the physical manifestation of the emotional load that I was carrying and not at that point processing in the right way. So it, it obviously came out in injury. And I remember at the time, um, I don't know if you know, like the, um, the film Philadelphia, there's a Bruce, Bruce Springsteen um, title track and it starts, I was bruised and battered. I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. And that is, as for me, always summed up that time because I was numb. I was so stripped down. I, I knew it wasn't working. I knew others had sort of lost their faith that I could be a part of good crews and teams. And I was essentially sort of stripped bare and didn't really have the energy left for positive emotion. So it just took time until I was able to sort of re-engage my brain and realize, you know what, something's got to change. Like it'll be a miracle if you get back in a boat and an absolute, I don't know how you're going to get back to the Olympics, but I still believed it was possible. I still believed I was capable, but I had to change how I thought about it because it wasn't working. It was miserable for other people. And I had this, I had two years left. So the way I see it now is I sort of reconciled myself with, with not winning and said, you know what, I'm going to shake hands with defeat and say, okay, fair enough. I'll let that version of me go. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Because that version of me had, had to go. And that was when I redefined success because it's all very well saying, well, I'm not going to think like that anymore. That doesn't work. But I had to, if I was going to carry on and attempt to get to Rio, I had to sort of have a something that, that really meant to me clearly what 
the ultimate experience in sport could be, but for that not to be reliant on winning. Um, and that's when I, you know, I, I really did a very proactive, reflective process of looking back over the best crews, thinking, okay, what did I value? If I could get to the to that end point of a podium again, how would I want to feel when I stand there? And actually, how do I bring about my best performances? And all of these things <laughs> converged. This realization that it, it wasn't about being focused on winning. It was actually being focused on what can we create together um, and that mindset. And, and that was when I sort of came up with this vow, this vow to myself that what I wanted to achieve was to stand on the Olympic podium with my arms around my teammates, sharing a feeling of joy, not relief absolute joy and the ability to look each other in the eye and celebrate each other and what we had created and not relief that it was over Mm. Um, I was pretty sure that if we'd won in Beijing I would have been relieved that we had won and I had crossed the line in London and I was pretty relieved that that was over and I knew that I would probably be in a crew with people who had not won an Olympic medal before who possibly had been to a games or two before but you know maybe not achieved what they wanted to achieve yet and getting to the olympics is really 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 hard and i just felt like i owed it to anyone that i rode with to be able to say you know what this is an amazing achievement we should never be relieved we should be really proud of ourselves and and when i when i had that clarity it was like this hose pipe of stress that had you know in the in the garden again <laughs> when your hose pipe is all like twisted and the water won't come out and then it bursts out and it's just there's just so much tension everywhere yeah. once I'd sort of figured this stuff out that's when the hose pipe untwisted and things started flowing again and oh my goodness I can't tell you how quickly my injury went away I didn't get injured again um, in those last two years and I was just so different to be around. Um, the really tricky thing was to hold on to that mindset in an environment that is very much focused on making sure that we get res- results. Um, and so that that was tricky, but I just knew almost that this this point in time was a line in the sand that I would not let myself walk back over. I'd said goodbye to that person. I'd shaken hands with defeat and that was that this was a different way forward that's um fascinating everything you've just said there's so many little bits i don't know where to start uh, first of all you so you did win silver as part of the eight in 2016 and the picture of you on the podium is exactly that the joy of being alongside your teammates rejoicing in the experience that you had and what you'd managed to achieve it was abundantly clear particularly in comparison to the picture that I've seen of the 2008 silver medal. It was just so clear that the joy was just absolutely coursing through all of you. And, you know, you did achieve that. The other thing I think in terms of, you know, letting this version of yourself die, if you like, and, you know, I wouldn't want to say that it was a breakdown or anything like that, but it did make me think of something that I've read about from Alain de Potin, who I quote occasionally, um, who talks about the value of of an experience like that insofar as often 
if you do get burnt out or hit the end of a um you know hit a wall it can actually end up being a really valuable experience if you can learn and shed those parts of yourself that are no longer serving you so even though i'm sure it was an incredibly unenjoyable experience at the time clearly it proved to be very valuable for you is that fair yeah yeah i mean i think i i quite often think in terms of images and i think of it like um almost a crevasse very very deep dark crevasse but to but to get out of this there are these you know sort of or even like a um you know a wound in the hand which we would have a lot in rowing like a broken split in the hand um and as the skin reheals over it's those strings across that the threads that start stitching it back together the the value is in each of those threads i mean no one wants to be down in the hole but it's those bits that start stitching it back together and the more of those threads there are and i know dr pippa grange referred to the resilience that is formed from building back up and that's certainly what i felt was that by building back up each of these strings was actually a learning of self-respect that's what i was rebuilding self-respect yeah um and that's what i would because i had these strings on the way up um closing that gap and holding it sealed when i was challenged in the future i had all these layers that were almost like a trampoline holding me up again mm. I think it can be really encouraging to think about this because right now, obviously, lots of people are going through challenging situations. And when we're in the thick of it, it can be really unpleasant in whatever guise it may come. But as you've shown, and, and I can think of so many examples where this is true, actually, what at the time is a, a very unpleasant experience can end up, you just don't know, can end up being one of the most valuable in important parts of your life in terms of the direction you then choose to take. It obviously it depends to what degree you can learn the lessons from them and, and listen to your body, for example. But that does, so this is a universal thing that I hope people, anyone going through a tricky time can, can take some solace from that. It's not, you know, it may end up yet being something of a blessing. Yeah. And of course, it never feels like that at the time. No, um, but I think even by surviving it, you are already repairing in some way. So actually, it doesn't need to be a really deliberate, proactive, challenging no. yeah, process. Yeah. Just get through it. Just getting through it. Um, mm. But I think something that's also really important to remember, and especially for now, is the energy it takes merely to survive challenge such as this and, and adapting to change is huge. And I think I often saw it in athletes where they would get through a really challenging patch, whether it was a particularly close world championships, qualifying for the Olympics or injury. And then they'd come back and say, well, you know, I, I, you know I've qualified or I feel better. You know, I'm, I'm sort of on top of things now. But there would always be this lag and then there would be the exhaustion. It's almost like a post-viral fatigue and I think we could not give ourselves credit for the amount of energy and the amount of our soul it takes merely to survive during difficult times. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So we should all give each other lots of space over the next few years. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then another thing that you said that I wanted to pick up on was just 
the fact that you had these injuries and you trace them back to having an emotional origin. And again, Johnny Wilkinson pops in my head just because he said the same thing after when he went through a se- just an unbelievable sequence of injuries and that he again felt that it was you know, his body or whatever giving him a message to he needed to do things differently. And it was like, no, you haven't learned the lesson yet. Okay, yeah. here's another one, here's another one, here's another one until finally. And so the emotional impact of on, on injury, whether it be in sport or anything like that, yeah, what what could you speak about that generally? Because obviously, it's not if someone is suffering an injury or ill or whatever, the natural or the normal way of doing things is to is to look at very much just at the symptoms and treat them, perhaps. But what you're alluding to is actually the emotional origin in some cases of these things. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think talk to any physio on an. On any sort of elite team, and they'll talk about this peak of um, presentation of physical injuries around moments of peak stress, so trials or you know competition time. And I don't think I would be so clear about having this perspective on sort of physical and emotional um, stress coming together if if it hadn't. Once I, once I had clarity in my mind and calm, once I had calm in my mind that I didn't get injured again, I mean, there was just nothing clearer to me than that. I mean, even in Rio, um, my back started to niggle again. Um, but the day after the final, absolutely fine. <laughs> so it's not like it suddenly healed itself. It was the emotional load that was released. So I think it's it's something always to look out for. Yeah, is, your body just giving you signs, basically. Yeah. So that's your your route and into 2016. Uh, thereafter, you retired, and let's dig into just a couple of the or a few of the the key things that you did learn in reflecting. And as you know, I've I've picked out quite a lot of them that we could discuss. But of the ones I picked out, whether it be you know belief, vulnerability, trust, identity, which of the in terms of teams and stuff, which have been, which is the one that stands out for you? I think possibly um, the, the aspects around giving each other in a team permission to believe, permission to believe in ourselves as people and that we were capable of doing what we were trying to put together. Um, I'd sort of seen it time and time again that, you know, if a crew had a bad day, they sometimes was almost like this hole opened up underneath them and they're sort of immediate, oh, well, you know, that just proves that we're not good enough. And I and I really wanted to bring to the final teams I was in a real calm assurance to say, yes, you can. <laughs> yes, we can. And it's okay to be yourself as well. I can really believe that in a sporting context anyway, we're all our most powerful as our natural selves when we're not inhibited, when we're not trying to emulate someone else, when we're not trying to reach a standard that someone else has set. And so that is what, you know, coming into that last year, I wasn't the best in the crew. I knew that I wasn't going to improve that much physically. Um, My skills in the boat were, I mean, they were fine, but they weren't going to improve a huge amount. But what I could 
have a contribution to was so all the other aspects other than power and skill I could really ensure that every single person in our team and that was more than the nine of us in the boat we had reserves we had you know we started out as 14 of us at at the beginning of the year but that we all felt that we could bring absolutely ourselves as people and again this sort of came back to my thinking of well at the end point if we want to stand there and feel absolute pride at what each of us has done as a person then each and every day we should have full permission to be ourselves and explore the very best of each and every one of us what we can do and express and offer to each other a couple of quotes that you've got so again just to pick up on a couple of things you've said a couple of quotes in terms of belief one that I like that you said is is not believing that you will but believing that you can and then also this idea of as well taking belief from others so they've done it why can't we and I think of when I chat to Ben Hunt Davis you can apply this not just in sports so setting up a business for example can be a bit of a or writing a book can be a bit of a daunting prospect but then you can look and think well they've done it so why can't I and you applied that philosophy in your in your sporting career and, and then that whole you know knowing okay on we we could do it in terms of we are capable of it doesn't mean that we guaranteed that we are going to do it but that we can do it and that's where the belief comes from and there's it's a bit more freeing and then in terms of you said being at your most powerful as your most natural selves so that so that's around authenticity and and I really strongly believe, again, this is just a totally universal thing. In my world of broadcasting, people being, finding, if you like, their authentic broadcasting voice, I've always been surprised in hindsight, actually, how how challenging that can be for people because people may turn up to a job and, and think, oh, there, there there is a certain way that we should do things. And I'm sure that's probably true in, in any sphere. But the more you can actually connect with you know, the, the real yeah. you as yeah. much as possible and live it fearlessly, yeah. the more kind of successful and happy you can be and, and able to connect with others. So it's, yeah, yeah. Is, is that, is that? Yeah, it, it takes, yeah, absolutely. I, you've put it so articulately. Um, I, I, it takes a lot of energy to be someone else or to put up on a front. And I think actually Chris Hoy in your interview with, with Sir Chris, um, he he talked about this really eloquently about um, almost like me to me, There's not and not comparing oneself to other people, and that's certainly something that I found, and I think it's it's really important to remember. I think. Yeah, it, it, it makes me think because you know we all are we're the same, but we're all unique, mm. and you can't compare yourself to other people because you can only you can only be you, you know. Um, and it's it's a, it's a funny one because I know certainly in my life I've had times where I thought, oh, I'm a bit broken in this area or that area, and then you go around trying to fix it. But actually, for me, it, it's it's not about fixing things; it's about accepting things. And then perhaps you know you can obviously work and improve in certain areas, but it's about accepting who you are warts and all and and i've actually this is why i've got a bit of an issue actually with the whole idea of self-esteem because Mm -hmm. self-esteem is about rating yourself i think you know how do you esteem something is how you rate something whereas accepting 
self-acceptance or acceptance of others even that's different it's it's no you're absolutely fine as you are and i think that's that's a, a really important distinction that i i believe what do you make of that well yeah i mean i i often remind myself that if my if um my partner's annoying me i do think well you know what like if he wasn't here the things that you would miss would be all those really annoying things <laughs> so, yeah yeah absolutely um, they're a part of they they're, they're our texture it's just not possible to be perfect and who would want to be i mean where's no, the absolutely. nuance God, can you imagine being hanging around with a perfect person how irritating would they be um and you said another one you talk about which relates to this as well was self-awareness so you learned about your driven side that you really consider to be a strength and actually your view of it somewhat changed yeah so we did a little bit of personality profiling um on two occasions in the team um the first time back in 2004 and i actually remember that um so we drew out on the ground uh sort of extroverts on on one side of the room introverts on the other side and um bex and i rebecca romero and i are more of the introverted side of things and I think one of us just opened the door because we were so unhappy with someone else being in the same zone as us, wanted to get even further away. Um, when I did it again just before Rio, and I sort of read back over my profile, and my, initially when I read it, I thought, oh, you know, this is great. Who wouldn't want to be around someone who's really focused, always pushing the standards, really demanding, like always sort of looking at, you know, how every day, how can we be better? Then I sort of looked around at everyone else in the room and could see that actually that is too intense. And what I realized that what I perceived as a super strength was actually super destructive for other people. And that was when I thought, okay, for this to work optimally between us, well, number one, that's probably why I have burnt out in the past because I'm pushing, pushing, pushing. Um, but there's there's a scale here and there's a point where a super strength is too much, both for ourselves and for those around us. And actually, the impact I was having on other people was really negative and it really encouraged me to look at things, you know, from other people's perspective and also ask others for help. Um, I think that was a really um, big thing in terms of vulnerability for me to say, actually, you know what, I do need your help. Um, and I really value it. It's not all about pushing forwards. Um, so, so I dialed down what I initially thought was a super strength. Um, and really left space for others to fill and for us to be like an amalgamation of lots and lots of really positive, strong energy. Mm. This is something that I really admire about people who get to play sport is that that the the processes that you go through to be able to uncover these things because how many people in so many other industries will be operating in a way and think this is my super strength unaware of the impact it's having on other people but in sport because of the amount of time you spend reflecting and training and getting input that you have this opportunity to develop this self-awareness and how valuable it is to and, and actually how strong you had to be to to take that on board as well. Yeah, I mean, I think um, especially in a sport like rowing where we're doing the same cyclical motion over and over and over again, 
so much in our life is the same day after day after day. So it is possible to analyze one day against another and say, okay, well, this is the impact that I had on this day was X because today was should have been the same as yesterday. And I look at sport now and I think of it actually almost like it's a slow motion explosion of all these different elements of life um, and sort of are sort of meandering through life as people, whether it's vulnerability, whether it's self-awareness, whether it's how we deal with pressure, whether it's how we communicate with other people, because we're doing the same thing day after day after day and we can analyse one race and then another race and actually ping out okay, well, that was a matter of um, we just didn't communicate well or that was because, you know, I thought you were fine, but but I didn't realise you were struggling or, or whatever it is. And I think having had that ability to see things element by element, I could now apply that now that sort of I'm on the other side. So what I learn under pressure helps me understand myself now in terms of my personality, how I cope with stress, how I interact with people even though life outside sport is so much more complex. Yeah, of course, yeah. And having that awareness of knowing how you react under pressure is incredibly valuable, isn't it? Um, yeah. So self-awareness, you talk as well about vulnerability. Obviously, you talk about you know sharing with others didn't make them faster, it made us faster. You talk about the best teams bringing more out of each other than they could out of themselves alone. And then trust so which takes time to build. Trust is obviously an, a, an a key part of, of teams. Yeah, it was. And I th- and, and this was really key for our crew in t- 2016. You know, our coach sat us down on day one and said, look, the, the thing that's going to make the difference between you doing and delivering what we know you're capable of and it for some reason slipping through all of our fingers in the last sort of 24 hours or in the middle of the final is is you really understanding each other and actually building a level of trust in each other in what we agree is the way we're going to row and race that will withstand the pressure of being in the Olympic final. Um, but he also said, look, that doesn't come from just looking at each other in the eye today and saying, yeah, I'm up for it. <laughs> You know, it's going to take time to build. It's going to take, you know, getting to know each other, support each other over the next few months. And you know what? You will have to compete against each other for your place. But through that process, you're going to really come to understand each other and see how far each of you is prepared to go for what you want to be a part of. And that respect that you will come out with will be, you know, one of these layers of trust day after day after day of seeing and understanding each other. Mm. Um, and, you know, boy, did we need it because we were coming last <laughs> in the Olympic <laughs> final. So <laughs> he was right. And a key part of building trust is obviously vulnerability. And I think back to an amazing story that Dame Catherine Granger told me, which was before her first Olympic silver the night before when the team psychologist said to each of her crew or asked them, why are you doing this? What does this mean to you? And in sharing that with each other in a way that they hadn't previously in the last four fifths of the race in the final the following day, that emotion that was caused by the connection that 
was prompted by the vulnerability enabled them to actually make history and become the first female team to win a, mm. a silver. Mm. Um, so yeah, vulnerability and, and trust go hand in hand, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's saying it's okay to show your vulnerability. And it was something that we had to really work hard at, I'd say, as a crew, because it's very competitive. You're in close confines all the time. And letting people know what your weaknesses are or that you're struggling when you're not in a team yet together. But I think this is where I was able to sort of bring that because almost in 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 that point in 2014, when I'd said goodbye to that sort of previous version of myself, it, I said, well, I may not make another team. It's not about me being in this eight in 2016. It's about Anne eight from Britain winning an Olympic medal because we believe it's possible for a British women's eight to at last stand on the podium for the first time. And I don't have to be a part of that. So it was, I felt safe. I, you know, I felt like I would sort of written myself off already in a way. So everything, I wasn't losing anything more by saying, look, these are my weaknesses or this is what I need help with. Or, you know what, you've had a really, really awesome day. (laughs) You know, I'd love to row with you. Well done. Yeah. So it comes back to authenticity as well. They're all linked, aren't they? It's like a ball of string overlapping and all that stuff. I'm just going to rattle through a couple of others because then there's one I want to come back to. And you talk about concentrating, not thinking. And I, I know you talk as well about only having, say, for example, three things in your mind and the power of having a low cognitive load. So you're not thinking all the time about, oh, I need to do this and do that. No, you'd have three things. And again, that reminds me of broadcasting because when people do live, it's good to have three points in your head. Mm. Um, you talk about creating, not recreating. So not thinking just because something worked once, it's going to work again, but you know, mm. continually evolving, creating, uh, learning to let your nerves pass through you like a train, as you say. Confidence not being a thing, it's actually trust and mm. belief. Mm. Um, understanding that pressure is largely self-induced you talk about seeing things as an opportunity not a threat so reframing it but the one I want to zoom in on is identity so each time that you in each of your five Olympics you you had established an identity I'm interested to what degree you agree with this but in in the sequence of the five games it, it seemed to me that there was an evolution in terms of the way you form this identity so the first one was technical excellence and then the last one was sassiness so um and i I, i'm trying to find the the page where where it's got all the others in it but yeah so in first of all can you just explain the importance of having an identity as a team and then also how how yours did evolve um yeah so it's really interesting you you because when I when I saw you written that about the evolution I had never thought of it in that prism at all um it had just been each time we had come together as a crew we'd sat down and said okay well what do we want to define us what's going to be our sort of um our guiding um principle by which we operate and I didn't see any connection from one team sort of progressing from another so I don't know I think maybe in the quads it becomes more aggressive and maybe that's what led possibly to too much uh physicality maybe in in Beijing uh and the women's eight the sassiness um 
that was, you know, when you've got a, such a large group, I think the the positive energy is is so important, and we really needed something that was more personality focused rather than trying to decide on something technical. And it's it's quite funny because it came from, and we were out on the water. It was really bad weather. We were at the European Championships, and uh, the men's eight, our British men's eight, rode past us. And I think I made some like slightly rude comment at them. And all the girls in the main my boat were so surprised because I'm normally the sort of the quiet, serious one. And um Zoe, our cox, just said, Oh, it's a bit sassy. Um, didn't think that didn't think that was in Fran. Um, and so we just made that our personality. And um it was something that we we really took on and again sort of gave ourselves permission to come back to so when we were racing yeah let ourselves um race like this bring our personality to the day rather than sort of feel like the day the day and the pressure and whatever anyone else um expects of a of a day or an olympics to feel like this is what we're going to impose and bring to and color the day with yeah is interesting. So I found the page. So 2004, it was technical excellence. 2005, zero tolerance. Next was doing the basics exceptionally well. Then ruthless simplicity and controlling the controllables and then controlling the controllables and then on to, to sassiness, which as you've just explained there is is more individual and about personality, whereas obviously the technical excellence is very much about, it feels a bit more mechanical. So it just feels to me like over time it softened and became more more human. Yeah, and I think that probably sums up sort of where I got to. Um, yeah, was very much okay. I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm not the the driver. I'm not sort of micromanaging anything. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm one of nine, and you know, let's just take a helicopter ride and make sure we enjoy what we've got the opportunity to be a part of. Yeah. Okay. Look, and there's so much other stuff we we could talk about, but I think we need to get to you know the conclusion and summing it all up really in terms of your journey and you have a story about uh, a teammate's wife correct me again if i'm wrong who, who yeah sort of coach and mentor right yeah, and, and, and yeah. reflecting on that experience made you realize a lot of things yeah so a friend of mine ian roots who has helped many many young aspiring rowers over the last sort of 10, 20 years, he had always been a huge support to me. Um, whilst I was injured in 2014, his wife, young wife, uh, same age as me, uh, was killed on her bike doing the John O'Groats to Land's End bike ride. And it was after, after that happened for him it was realizing that all the people that were around him, you know, so sort of day in, day out around him were through sport. We all knew each other through rowing. Um, and there was one day where shortly after Anna's funeral, when we went out together, um, we just sort of took, you know, change a scene, took Ian out for, for a meal and there were there was an Olympic champion there. There were multi Olympic medalists, Anna's parents, people who'd never been to the Olympics before. But we were all there together, and I just realised 
okay, so this really is what sport is so meaningful for. It's that we know each other so well. There's nowhere else we would want to be than supporting and being with such a close friend during the worst days of his life. And sport has given us that relationship and that understanding of each other. Um, And in that, on that evening, that's when I realised that was, you know, that was a line of understanding of what sport really meant to me that I wasn't prepared to cross again. Like it wasn't about winning at all costs. It was about, look, this is what sport gives us the opportunity to build. It's these relationships that are far, far, far more important than any outcome. Um, and, and so that, you know, that, that, that day sort of, it was sort of a, it sealed things for me. And, you know, I just feel so fortunate to have, have met these people and to have, as I say, formed these relationships. And yeah, it just seems more important to me than success or failure. Absolutely. Yeah. So it is about shared experiences and relationships, essentially. Mm. Yeah. And, and sport is a metaphor for life. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, it is a metaphor. It is a metaphor for life. You know, if you ask anyone who's been with someone on their deathbed and they're looking back, they're not thinking. You know, it, it tends to always veer in that direction, anyway, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it does. It does. Yeah, and I think it always gives you perspective, and perspective is very healthy for me, anyway. Look, you've been on a, a, a heck of a journey, Francis. <laughs> so just to summarise then, if you had to su- succinctly summarise what you've learnt and what what anyone could take take from what you've learnt and what it teaches you about about life and what's important. I mean, we, we've kind of obviously just done it, but if, if you were able to just, just summarise. I, th- I think I'd say it's it's okay. <laughs> to be yourself and to close the gap between what we intend to do and what we actually do to continue continually evolve our understanding of ourselves so we can actually make progress day on day in understanding what for us makes a good day and if we can have as many good days as possible then for me that's a good life well lived well said that was excellent succinct and succinct and punchy just what i was looking for Um, francis thank you so much for coming on it's been a a real pleasure talking to you so three down one to go and and remember as well you've got to get me becky as well we agreed on that so that's um... my goodness (laughs) debbie and bex this is this is a tall order there we go you can tee them up for me. Much yeah. appreciated. But no, um, anyway, thank you very much. It really has been a joy. And I, I think this is such a uh, a conversation for the, for the moment. Like I said, it, it's, it's one that keeps sort of popping up. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, doing these kind of shows, if you like, or podcasts, there's a lot of focus on, you know, how to get to the very top and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think there is a, a, an element of missing the trick about actually – there's there's more to it than that and i think we've we've covered it here i think we have yeah excellent think, excellent well well done yeah. us all right well look, thank you so much it's, it's been a real pleasure talking and i'll speak to you again soon no doubt thank you simon likewise 
Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Don't Turn With The Score. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. And I would, of course, be delighted to hear your thoughts, ideas and questions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.